before we start this episode of the Campbell Law Reporter, we wanted to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. And to all the students, good luck on finals. At the time this episode was recorded, the Restorative Justice Clinic had just announced a new partnership with Wake County. For more information about this partnership and any new developments, please visit Campbell Law School's website. At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email campbelllawreporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose by reporting with purpose. We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year. And we're back to another exciting episode of the Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Stephen Dinkle. I have the privilege and the honor to talk to the man in charge of the Restorative Justice Clinic, Professor John Powell. How are you? I'm well, Stephen. How are you? I'm chugging along. So thanks for taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule to uh, talk with us. Once I heard the opportunity that your schedule had the window, I was like, yes, let's do it. Uh, Part the Red Sea and let's get it done. Can you, uh, first of all, just kind of break down what the Restorative Justice Clinic does it's, it's a big term, and I know a lot of things go into it. You mind doing that? And then, but before, give us a little bit about your background and, and how you uh, landed in the spot that you're in now. Well, that's really a good way to get into talking about what the Restorative Justice Clinic is. And um, I know from talking to you this morning that you and I have a lot of things in common. Um, I had a, a career before this. I worked for Carolina Power and Light Company for 16 years. I had three kids along the way. I went to school at night for 10 years to get my degree in communication and started out as a business major because um, people said, well, if you're going to get your degree and work for Carolina Power and Light Company, you need to get either engineering or business. And with my brain, I knew it wasn't going to be engineering. Uh, My dad had a business degree. I thought, well, business is it. Started taking business courses and hated it. Took a communication course and loved it. And it was at that point that I decided, and I've made this decision at several times in my life, I was going to do what I felt like I was meant to do and what I love doing. So I became a communication major, as it turned out, and, and at the time, I had no idea that I would ever go to law school. I uh, had never wanted to be a lawyer. Still not quite sure if I want to be a lawyer. I love doing the work, though. And that's another thing that I tell my students is, I, I don't want you to think about the job that you're going to get. I want you to think about the work that you want to do, because I think that your job will develop out of the work that you want to do. So I, I got that degree. Um, last couple of years of going to school at night, I was really drawn to do something in the human relations field. I'm very much a relational person. Became a relational person over time, because I was very much an introvert as a younger person very much an extrovert now, very relational, love being with people. And so I knew that I wanted to be in a field that led me there. And I started looking around, and I had a professor who actually mentioned that one of his previous students had gone to law school out of her communication degree. And I couldn't shake it. That was one of those things. The seed was planted. I think so. I think that's the way the Lord works. And at the perfect timing, that's what happens, and that seed was planted. 
and I couldn't shake it. And so I started exploring, and Campbell made a lot of sense for a lot of reasons for me. And so I took the LSAT and uh, got accepted to Campbell and moved my family down to Bowie's Creek, and, and we did that. And um, Campbell was a perfect fit for me. I'm not saying it was an easy road. Uh, law school was extremely difficult for me, um, but it was good. And, you know, a lot of people say, I don't know how you did it with three kids and a family and all that. But for me, I have to have uh, balance in my life. I just can't do one thing. Uh, as you alluded to a while ago, my schedule is busy. I'm all over the place, and I love it that way. That's one reason I was drawn to the district court as a criminal defense attorney because I'm I can be on the run all the time. Um, but that you know that's that's kind of been my path. And so uh, Campbell was big on teaching us how to open our own law offices right out of law school. Uh, when Campbell was formed, one reason it was formed was to populate some of the more rural, uh, poor counties in the state that did not have legal representation for their citizens. And so they were heavy on teaching us how to do that, and I always knew that's what I wanted to do. I was older. I was 36 when I started law school, 39 when I got out. So I did open my own office right out of law school in Wake County, then quickly moved, moved uh, back my office back to Harnett because we had fallen in love with the area. Um, it was great for my kids. Uh, Campbell was a playground for them. When we when I started, I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and an eight-month-old, so they had kind of grown up there. Um, and then to move into the history of the restorative justice clinic, uh, I did um, – the one thing that I said that I knew I would never be was a criminal defense attorney. And so I know that God got a belly laugh when I said it that day. And uh, the first thing I fell in love with in law school was criminal law. And quite frankly, Stephen, I think it's because of my nature. I'm a list guy. Um, there are I, a lot of lists there. A lot, a lot of lists in criminal law. I mean, that's the way the elements are lined up in a list. And so you got to prove them all beyond a reasonable doubt. And on the defense side, I, it was my job to cast a little doubt on those elements. But it resonated with me, and it also put me where I wanted to be, which was in people's lives that needed assistance. And a lot of times we're in situations that they had very little control over, uh, born into a lot of different things. Um, and that goes back to my personal experience of having a brother who was born with severe mental and physical handicaps that could never take care of himself, and watching uh, his situation and my family visiting with him in the institutions that he had to grow up in that really created a deep empathy within me for other people in those kinds of situations. So I became a criminal defense attorney because I could cross things off the list. You know, I'm the kind of guy that makes a list, and then Saturday I get up and I start working on it, and if I do something that wasn't on the list, I write it down and cross it off. Um, so that made sense to me, but it was very frustrating because I learned that we have a system that is really not developed to help people. Our criminal legal system, and a lot of times when I'm giving presentations, I, I say there are three basic questions that our system asks. What law was broken? Who did it? And what punishment do they deserve? Well, when you're sitting in a courtroom and you're looking out over that audience of people, what you're looking at is a lot of pain. And so those questions that I just ask don't address the pain that is sitting in that courtroom. When someone has been violated, and they've had a loss, uh, those questions are really focused on the state's needs. The state creates the law, so the state takes over the system, and the state imposes the punishment because you broke the law. But there's a lot of harm that's done to people that it, that it can't address, and that was my frustration. 
And then I went to a seminar that had been organized by Leary Davis, and Leary was the founding dean of Campbell Law School, and he was still a professor when I was there. He was my professor. I described him as the Old Testament God. I think mm-hmm. uh, I went home one day and I said, I got this professor, and I think he's the Old Testament God. I think he loves me tremendously, but if I step out of line, I think he may burn me to a crisp. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Leary became a good friend after law school, someone who I greatly admired and, and still do, and I hold him up as one of my mentors and one of my heroes. He organized a seminar that I attended, and it was a seminar basically for lawyers and preachers because Leary saw a lot of commonalities between those two professions. Sounds like the start of a joke, actually. Right? It, it really <laughs> does, yep. A group of lawyers and preachers. Yeah, so he saw a similarity and brought that group together. Yep. How? How and, was that mending those two minds? Because I grew up in the church, and um, my dad was a preacher uh, or a youth pastor. I've never thought about the relationship on similarities with attorneys. So mm-hmm. that conference had to have been fascinating. It was fascinating. And one thing that Leary believed in was the Myers-Briggs testing, and so we all did that on day one so we could understand the commonalities and the differences that we had. And he was teaching, too, that he thinks it's good for us to do that within law firms so that we can work together better and get along and serve our clients better. And, you know, when you do stop and think about it, Stephen, um, to me, the commonality between those two professions is that uh, hopefully we love people and we want to help our society. Um, And people have often told me, I've spoken in a lot of churches, and I was speaking in my own church one day right after I graduated in People said, I think you missed your calling. You really should have been a preacher. And um, so they saw saw my love for the Lord. They saw my love for people. And to them, maybe I should have been a preacher. They said, you know, Campbell's got a divinity school. And I said, well, I really appreciate that. I understand. But uh, I am right where I need to be. Uh, And one of the jokes that I make now is I probably cuss too much and drink too much bourbon (laughs) to really be an effective preacher. Uh, but I do think that the work that I'm able to do as a lawyer, it certainly is my ministry. And I feel I feel like I'm in church every day. I feel like I'm in church with you right now talking about this this program. I'm, I'm just loving it. It's uh, put that cross that's been given to you. You know, it's, you can have multitude of callings and vocations. Some people may have calling to the ministry or to be in a monastery somewhere or whatever, right? Fill it in. But there are multiple things that people can do, and it's... I think people lose that idea that it's still your ministry and it can really do the big word that that came out. What what you said to me was love. And you don't think that word too, too much when you deal with criminal law. Yeah, we don't we don't hear that much around here. We don't hear it much in the courtroom. But you do hear it when you're in 306 and uh, we're, we're talking about restorative justice and we're sitting with each other in circle and we're sharing our stories and building that relationship. And one thing that I've told my students is, I said, I want you to try to create a culture of love around here. When you're walking down the hall and you see somebody that you love, tell them you love them. Let's start using that word more. Um, so I do believe in, uh, in building uh, lawyers who are extremely competent in the law, but extremely compassionate in their treatment of, of people and each other. And that seems like the central mission, in essence, right? Uh, or at least part of the core values of the, the, of the clinic. So mm-hmm. here's the big question mark, right? What is the restorative justice clinic? Well, just going back to my frustration, I, I met uh, Tony Baker, who was a new professor at that seminar that Leary had put together, and he introduced me to restorative justice, just us getting to know each other. 
him hearing that I was a criminal defense attorney, I'd just been certified as a civil superior court mediator. He said, uh, he started talking about restorative justice. He said, you ever use mediation in your criminal practice? I thought, this guy's nuts. <laughs> uh, no, because I'm not putting my client in front of people to talk about what they've done. Uh, because, you know, whatever they say, he can and will be yeah. used against mm-hmm. him in a court of law. He said, yeah, I understand that. He said, but there are ways that we can we can work around that. And what he knew was that in programs like we have now, you can create local rules that protect what people have to say so they can admit wrongdoing. And when you're going to bring together victims and offenders in a meaningful way, people need to have a safe place to admit wrongdoing. That's the beginning point to get into a restorative resolution. Yeah, it doesn't it almost seems a waste of everybody's time if there can't be that open, right? Because a part of healing is is truthful confession. And if you have to censor that or dilute it, one is it fully truthful or mm-hmm. two is it fully impactful? Right. And so knowing that the rules can be there to yeah. put people in that safe space to yeah. have effective conversations is great. Yep. And I think pre-adjudication, it's critical. I think you have to have it if you're going to be able to get to a restorative solution. So Tony wanted a clinic in the law school, which we didn't have. I wanted something to serve the courts and the people in it in a way that we didn't have. And so those two ideas came together perfectly, and then we found people that were very supportive of that. Willis Witchard was the dean of the law school at the time. We met with him, and he said, this sounds great. Uh, we went to our chief district court judge, it was Ed McCormick at the time. He said, well, what y'all don't know is I'm working on a court improvement pro- project right now, and this is perfect. So Willis and Ed came together in what we thought, what Tony and I thought was going to be an informational meeting. But we walked out of it with Ed saying, we're going to uh, write a joint order that I'm going to sign that's going to create a task force to figure out how to have a clinic at the law school that serves the court system and the people in it. And we're like, wow, this is amazing. So I was on the task force from the um, from the attorney side, from the criminal professional side. Tony was on the task force from the law school side. So we had others from each side that were on that task force. And we met about once a month for about a year and a half. We found money for it through the Governor's Crime Commission. Uh, we had friends on our uh, task force that were tied into that sort of thing. So um, Ed and Willis, of course, know a lot of people, and so they they picked the right people to be on the task force. It built buy-in into it right away. We didn't have to get buy-in once we implemented We already had it. I mean, there were people on the task force that were going to be referring parties to the law school, people on the task force that were going to be taking in the cases for the law school and doing the facilitation work. So they were very smart about what they did. Um, it came together very nicely. Um, at the end of that, uh, I told them I kind of felt – them looking at me like a director <laughs> and i said look i got a full-time law practice uh, i got to get back to it they said well would you consider you and tony being co-directors and getting us started i said yes so we did that for the first two years we were created Stephen, as a diversion program for the juvenile court in harnett johnson and lee that was district 11 where the law school was located so the juvenile court could look at cases that were coming to them and if they thought they were appropriate for victim-offender dialogue, which is where we work with people individually to prepare them to come together for a face-to-face meeting to address the harm that's been done and how can we rectify the harm, those were the cases that we were getting. We started very slow. As a matter of fact, in the first semester, we only got three referrals, and I thought, uh-oh, mm-hmm. this is not going to go. 
But we really needed that because we needed to go slow because we were learning our way. And we had success in all of those cases. Next semester, we got about a dozen. And by the end of the two years, we had so much work going on, it was hard to keep up with it. We understood very quickly from the cases that were being sent to us that a lot of the work that was being sent to the juvenile court was being sent to them by school systems. About 60% of the cases that the court was sending to us had been sent to the court system by school systems. At the time, of course, being uh, I was very involved in the community. I was a Little League baseball coach. Love it. And I had the school superintendent's son on my team. So we had a relationship, and it was a natural way for me to talk to him about this. And I said, Donald, I want to tell you what we're doing in the courts, and I want to see if it makes sense to you that we would be a direct resource for your school system. And when he learned about it, he said, wow, this is amazing. Yes, we need to be a part of this. So he put me in principal's meetings for about the next six months. And uh, I learned that I was talking to the wrong people because at that time, now just remember, we started in 2003. So it was about 2005 when I started having these conversations with principals. And we were very much entrenched in those days in a zero-tolerance policy in schools. You know, if you fight, you're gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was an uphill battle. But when I got in a room with social workers and counselors and psychologists and behavioral support people that were working in the Harnett County school system, it made perfect sense to them. And so we had a social worker that left that training and went back to his principal at Triton High School. And he said, if we are going to be a positive behavior support school, and that was the training that I was invited to be a part of, we have got to be a restorative justice school too. And the principal had trust in his social worker, and he said, well, let's talk about it. So I was invited to talk about it. That was the very beginning of us working in the schools. That has grown, Stephen, to the point, now that we're in Wake County, that Wake County has created its own restorative practices team. Jeez. Out of the work that we were able to bring to them from what we started down in Harnett, Johnson, and Lee. Um, The last year that we were doing the work before the pandemic hit, we facilitated about 120 cases in Wake County schools in that in that school year. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of kids. So if you at least double that number, that's the number of kids that we were able to facilitate with and make an impact on. Wow. And what we have learned through keeping uh, data in the cases that we have done, and that's a part of working on grant money, you have to keep data and make reports. We've learned that the reoffense rates are, relatively speaking, almost nothing. Um, you'll you'll have about nine out of ten kids that will offend, go through a restorative practice, and will never reoffend again. Not just against each other, but against anybody else. Wow! So what we theorized is that the restorative work is not only going to be restorative, but it's going to be transformational. And we believe that the data shows that it is transformational work when you are able to sit with a person. Just like you and I are sitting three feet from each other, looking at each other in yeah. the eyes. So we're getting a sense of who we are. We were able to sit and have a conversation so we get a deeper sense of who we are and what we have in common. We spend a lot of time when we're with those kids helping them have those conversations. And quite frankly, I think that is the key to the great uh, low reoffense rates because it's not just the conflict that we're talking about. It's not just the understanding that there was a miscommunication or there was instigating or whatever it was. But that's a person that's got a story. And when we learn that story, the next time conflict comes our way, and believe me, it's coming our way all of our lives, we pause and we think they've got a story, I've got a story, we need to 
we need to talk about it. And it, yeah, and it's not just talk about the wrong that was committed or the the problem that, in essence, started the whole conversation. What I got out of that, in addition to that, was you're giving them a, a good infrastructure and, and skill sets that'll help them no matter what they're doing. Talk to somebody, learn how to communicate or learn how to <laughs> learn how to learn how to communicate with those individuals, right? Because everybody communicates differently and look people in the eye when you're talking to them and, and, and all that. So it's not just let's fix this problem mm-hmm. and, and, and restore us back to a good spot, right? That's the mission. But it's it's more than just okay. We're going to talk about this problem, right? And like that, amplify that. What'd you say? One hundred and ninety-two. One hundred and twenty cases. One hundred and twenty cases. School year, so at least two hundred and forty. Yeah. Two hundred and forty kids. Yeah. Are getting armed with solutions mm-hmm. from transgressions, mm-hmm. whatever that may be, mm-hmm. and then also armed with skill sets to help them. And and kids with those type of skills is magnificent. That it's hard for you know you hear kids nowadays you know you hear right. that phrase all the all the time, that's great to hear. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't shock me right. that nine out of ten are never going to do anything again or haven't. And it leads directly to the benefits that we hope we find in schools, which is higher attendance, um, more satisfaction, people feeling safe, academically being able to achieve more. Uh, graduation rates going up which is probably uh, be able to where the child has a lot more comfort with saying teacher i don't understand this right right instead of being embarrassed or they recognize from what they're learning at that oh here's trouble Mm -hmm. and and go through the motions of what what they've been taught yeah and i also want to address i mean you've identified the learning curve and and the learning that takes place for the kids that get involved in this process but think about what our law students are learning because they're sitting at the table. They are facilitating the dialogue. And they begin by going in and observing folks like me and the, and the trained people in the Wake County Schools that are doing the work. But then they become facilitators and start facilitating it themselves. And my goal is to get them in teams of two so that before the end of the semester is over, they're able to work in teams of two without people like me in the room. And I jokingly but truthfully tell my students, when you can get rid of me, that's when you're really going to start learning something. And it really is because, you you know, you take control, you fail, you learn, you mm-hmm. try again. Uh, but they do have a good foundation before we get them to that point. And so it's a tremendous learning opportunity. And I didn't even think about – I was I was so uh, amazed by hearing what the kids get. Yeah, there's other quote-unquote kids in that room, right, law students. Yeah. And they learn conflict resolution things but also – effective communication with potential clients out of that absolutely and because there's a lot of restorative nature with the client attorney relationship Mm -hmm. you have Mm -hmm. to have that trust you have to be able to be candid uh, with your attorney wow there's just so many layers that go on top and that's just one part of the clinic right yeah that's just that's just one part of the clinic and actually it's it has become a lesser part of the clinic for for me as a director because like i said when we moved to raleigh we brought the practice with us. Um, the court system and the school system immediately embraced what we were doing. And then the Kellogg Foundation came in a few years ago and, and gave a big check to the Wake County Schools, but they also funded a full-time position to expand the work that we were doing in the clinic. That has turned into about a 15-member team that Wake County Schools wow. has that does the restorative work for themselves now. 
that is so that's so great yep and our, our students are still involved in that work but it has allowed me to expand the work of the clinic into the criminal areas and, and prison areas and so that's another big part of what we do so what it what is that area of the clinic entail well we still have the relationship with the juvenile court so when they have cases that they think are appropriate for people to come together in a mediation context instead of in a litigation context they send those cases to us and we do the same thing that we've always done we have um, other jurisdictions mostly that will send us more serious criminal cases Uh, wake county has only sent us a few serious criminal cases uh, other jurisdictions have sent us some serious criminal cases. Uh, we've, we've facilitated a shooting. We've facilitated home break-ins. We've facilitated uh, police brutality cases. I, I was just going to – that came into my mind just now just from the world that we've lived in the last few years. Was there an uptick because of uh, the news of a lot of the police brutality? Have you guys seen more cases like that, or is it just put it more on the radar? We've only had one specific case like that. Um and I think it did come to us because of the rise in those kinds of cases, and if not the rise, at least the uh, the the rise in, in us being able to see those kinds of cases. Uh, so we had a prosecutor that was uh, had been exposed to restorative justice and knew a little bit about it. When he was elected to his office, he and I had a conversation about it, and then when he had this case, he remembered that. So that's when he reached out to me to see if we would be involved, and we di- we did that case, and we had students involved in that. Um, another significant area that we have expanded is doing our circle work within prisons. We were invited about seven years ago to do circles in the general population at Central Prison right here in Raleigh. And what what is a circle? A circle is a um, a way to bring larger groups of people together. For example, in the prisons, we'll have seven or eight inmates uh, that apply. Once they've read about the description of what circles is, they will apply, and they're vetted by the prison. We don't have input into who gets chosen. They'll talk to us and get our concerns if we have any, but they ultimately make the decisions about who can be a part of it, and there's routinely a, a waiting list to get in. So we go in on a weekly basis. We meet with the same people, uh, the same inmates, the same us, the only variation we have is sometimes we will take a victim or a survivor in to tell their story because one thing that we think is important for guys that are going to be either coming out of prison or never coming out of prison who need to live in a more healthy community to have an empathy around some of the things that they have done to have an understanding of how they have affected people by their actions and to give them a chance to talk about how they have been affected themselves and I'm going to tell you something, Stephen. I have not met a prisoner yet who wasn't a victim before mm-hmm. they victimized. Yeah, uh, Hurt people hurt people is something that we hear a lot. And so we know that. So we give them an opportunity to tell their stories. And uh, we, we tell our stories first. And uh, we have significant, difficult stories that we tell first from people that have experienced terrible things in their lives. And they want to tell their stories. And they, these are uh, compassionate uh, loving people, they don't come in uh, throwing stones at these guys. Yeah, <clears throat> I can just see a nightmare scenario potentially yeah. having with because there's so much affect behind everybody's experience, right? right. It's, that can really just turn up the heat on mm-hmm. people's emotion and passion. How do you get that to a controllable level for well, these circles? We we know all the people that we invite to come in and tell their stories. Uh, I'll give you an example. One is a woman named Linda Simmons. Her son, Brian, was murdered in Wilmington in 2004. 
she came to us a number of years ago and said, I've heard about this victim-offender dialogue thing. And she said, I've been thinking about having a conversation with the guy that killed my son. And now that I know that it can happen, I wonder if we could talk about it. So we did talk about it. We talked about it for about two years before she got to a point. She said, I think I'm ready. So that's when we started in earnest and did what we do, which is we sat down with her and her husband to have an individual conversation. We wrote to James Moore, who killed her son. He was incarcerated in the eastern part of the state, told him who we were, what her request was, would he allow us to come visit with him. He did. He was enthusiastic about it, so we visited with him. And we knew that we had parties that were suited to have this kind of meeting, so we asked the prison right away to begin thinking about whether we could do it or not because they have authority to say no. And they said no. Wow. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That was not the answer I was expecting. Well, that was the answer I was expecting. Okay. Because uh, that's that's what they do. Uh, the idea of bringing a victim into a prison to meet with a guy that's killed a son True. is not a welcoming kind of thought. Yeah, especially from there on the security <laughs> side, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Well, security is their number one thing. And so it did not surprise me, but we did not quit there. Linda said, well, I don't think we're through. She said, I wonder if we can write to each other. I said, let me find out. So I found out, and there was not anything in the judgment that prohibited that. So they said, okay. And James responded, he said, yes, and if you write to me, I will respond. So they finished their dialogue, so to speak, through the written letters, and it was very meaningful for both of them. We're working on a protocol now with the state, and the state has invited us to do this now, which is something that's the opposite of what I just described. Yeah. I said no. They have now invited us to write a protocol with them so that they can approve it so that this can become a victim right in our state. And so this is one of those things that I have dreamed of for a long, long time. When I was first learning about restorative justice and we were first getting prepared to do the clinic, I had a training where I saw a documentary film uh, where a woman was able to meet with the man that murdered her daughter. And I thought, we have got to get here. But we have hit a lot of roadblocks, but now we are here. And the state is actually sending us cases to facilitate dialogue in and asking us if we can help with them with the protocol. That's getting me away from, we were talking about what circles are. And so circles are a way that we can go in on a, on a consistent basis, meet with the same people, give everybody an opportunity to tell their stories and to learn from each other, create empathy, um, create uh, compassion. There's a great example of Linda going in and telling her story on death row. And the next week, a man named Michael Braxton wrote a letter to her. And she actually came back the next week. Linda is amazing. Once she goes in, she tends to come back. So she came back, and Aleem was able to read her the letter. And it was a letter where he actually showed that he had created an empathy for what she had been through and for what he had done because he had killed three men himself. And he kind of put himself in her shoes and put his mom in her shoes. And it was just an extremely moving thing. It's something that we use a lot when we're – talking about this work now so um if you look on my desk over there you see a lot of knickknacks laying around Mm -hmm. those are what we call talking pieces they have been given to me by people uh, through the years and a talking piece is an object that you can hold in your hand and it has uh, significance to it so every one of those pieces on my desk have a story okay and i would tell the story and then we would use that as our talking piece for the day and the talking piece goes around the circle in order. So I would give a prompt, and I would hand it to somebody that's beside me. 
and that's their invitation to answer the prompt. Or if they're not quite ready, they can pass. Okay. So they have the autonomy to do that. Uh, and it goes around the circle in order so that everybody knows they're going to be invited to speak and speak whatever their truth is about the particular prompt. If people pass, I just recognize that. The talking piece comes around back to me, and I'll say, I feel like maybe there's more that needs to be said, and I'll just pass the talking piece again. So that's how we facilitate conversation in the circle every time. We do it in prisons. They're doing it in schools in a big way, and this kind of gets back to what the point that you were pointing out a while ago about the tools that you use and the ways that we can begin to communicate and the ways that maybe a student can begin to communicate to a teacher when they wouldn't before if they didn't have these kinds of skills. And so teachers will run circles in their classrooms to give kids an opportunity to build relationships, to talk about challenges. It's just a powerful, powerful, beautiful process. And what's just hit, like, it's not, it doesn't seem like earth shattering, right? Like, <laughs> it's not. like, it's not like you had to like do a big old group of mathematicians figuring out the perfect formula and everything. It's right. getting people closely together having compassion listening and yeah. and having the opportunity to tell their story yeah like that's crazy well if it were rocket science steven i couldn't be involved in it that's for sure <laughs> but it's relationship building and but it's, it's but it's not easy stuff so, sir so i'm going to say that you're 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 leading a ship that's not easy uh done so uh pat yourself on the back because look what's look what's done in the uh, you got the school stuff exploding this stuff uh, with the the prisons getting larger and larger and everybody like it's working it's it's yeah it may not be uh you know try to get a, a rocket on the moon type of thing but i don't know how any of this stuff works type of thing you know like not saying that it's me but a lot of people wouldn't think that just getting people to talk yeah. can be so beneficial loving and healing because yeah. healing can happen on these situations happen on a two front mm -hmm. the victim and the perpetrator right well, it, there are a couple of things that you bring out that resonate with me. First of all, um, I'm not going to pat myself on the back <laughs> because all I'm doing, Stephen, is leaning in to what I think my calling is and what I think my gifts are to achieve that calling. Uh, and I can't take credit for that. The day that I decided to be me, which is the person that God has created me mm -hmm. to be, was the day that my life began to change so much for the better. Um, I encourage my students to do the same thing. I love it. It goes back to what I said a while ago. When they come in and they sit down in that chair and they're scared to death and they're about to graduate and they're like, what kind of job am I going to get? I said, don't talk to me about that. What kind of work do you want to do? Yeah, what do you want to do? Yeah. What, is, what is that old saying? Uh, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life? Absolutely. Or something like that, right? And every time uh, the dean sends me a new contract, an employment contract, I sign it real quick. And I run it up there and give it to him because I, I don't want them to change their minds mm -hmm. because I can't believe they paid me to do this work. I mean, I love this work. This is what I was created to do. And so I have leaned into it. I want you to lean into what you're made to do, Stephen, when you graduate from here. Um, I want all of our students to do that. I want us to see this profession as a calling to serve others. And that's part of our distinctives at Campbell Law is to do, do that. I mean, that's what resonates with me the most. So I think if we would do that, we're going to be the very best lawyers uh, that we can be and, and given of what we're made for and, and helping other people. I love that. And it is a, not only a calling to 
educate yourself and, and learn a profession, but it's a calling to do specific work that you can do because of that. And I think so many people in law school get hung up on the aspect of, oh, I need to make money or I need to, I need to look for that job that has that check. A lot of the, that may work for some people. Great. But for other people, that's going to be just debilitating right? and embrace and, and hearing that you're saying, what do you want to do? What do you, what do you love to do? And, and, and in essence, how can you exploit the education and the gift that you have mm-hmm. to do that? Cause yeah. then they're going to be frolicking outside when they're go, you know, going to work is yeah, you have your days, right. But you're doing meaningful work that you like, right? Why wouldn't you want to do that? So it's, it's great that those, those are the further tools that are coming out from the clinic. Um, there, I know there's some brand new news Mm-hmm. Uh, that's coming out of the clinic mm-hmm. um, that was just announced. Right. Um, what is that? You're partnering up with um, uh, the county again, right? Yeah. Wake County uh, adopted a local ordinance um, that prohibits discrimination across the board. Um, and so where that came from, I mean, the county adopted the ordinance, and then they were tasked with, okay, so how do we implement? or the processes that we put in place? Um, and believe it or not, there were lawyers that, did, that do not want people to have to go to court. And so they wanted to build in what they call a conciliation process. Um, what I would call it a more common term for me would be a mediation process. Okay. A way that people can come together to try to resolve their issues without having to take them into the court system. And that really is why mediation came into existence to begin with, to try to cut down on litigation and make, make things better for people. And that's a lot of the work that we do. Well, when they were looking at how to do this, uh, one of their attorneys is Allison Cooper, who used to be one of my clinical students. As a matter of fact, Allison graduated and went back into her own community. And uh, she called me one day and said, I want to start a juvenile justice project, which is what we used to be called where I'm at. And I said, well, let me help you. So I worked with her. We got a grant through the Governor's Crime Commission. They had funded us. They were very high on our program. And so she started her own her own clinical program crazy. where she was in her community. Um, so when Allison was tasked with, okay, so how do we create this conciliation program? The first thing she thought about was the Restorative Justice Clinic. And she called me, and she explained to me what was going on. She said, so I thought of the clinic, and I thought of the great experience that I had. And what do you think? I said, sounds like a perfect fit for me. Uh, I said, but I don't make the decision. Dean Leonard will make the decision, so let me talk to the dean and let me see what he says. I knew what he was going to say because Dean Leonard is amazing. And he is mm-hmm. – I, 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 I say this in public. He's never said no to me over anything. And he laughs and he says, well, that's just you, John. I say yeah. no a lot. But I really appreciate him. So I had a conversation with him. He said, sounds like a no-brainer to me. This sounds perfect. And so we went back and, and told Allison that, and she talked to her folks, and it, it made so much sense because we're already doing the work. And the nature of the work that these complaints are going to come out of is re- needs to have restorative work involved in it. So uh, we've put a process in place. They put a, a process in place where people can file a complaint through their portal. They are the first ones that vet it for things like, uh, does it fall within the jurisdiction of the ordinance? Is it the subject matter that the ordinance covers? Is it geographically an area that we can work in? And if they answer those questions that, yes, they are, then they send it to us, and we do what, what they call in the ordinance an investigation. Okay. And really what that is is a conversation with both sides to try to determine 
uh, further determine is it within the jurisdiction of the ordinance and what are the issues here and how do y'all want to best resolve these and so um, that's what we have in place i love the growth that's been going on with the clinic and the aspect of like once these once you have the clients experience the clinic on their own it kind of will then just by osmosis hopefully go to everybody else it just Mm -hmm. it's exponentially growing and and things like that i have to ask this and and this may be um a little bit i don't know out of left field but we'll go with it (laughs) there are there any blowback that you get like people that are not really liking the idea of restorative justice my my concern is is that some people think no like we shouldn't get victims and 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 uh, perpetrators together or something like that they need to do their time or whatever mm-hmm. I, are you getting a lot of blowback do you get blowback like i how it seems that that's an, an unfortunate possibility i like hearing that the community comes together and, and likes it but do you guys get kind of a feedback like that well I, the way i would answer that question is not as much as we used to so back in Good. 2003, when the clinic started, this was a crazy idea. You're going to do what? You're going to bring offenders and victims together at a table to talk? That was something that people had a really hard time wrapping their minds around, especially when the paradigm that you're used to is a punitive paradigm. It's, you know, you do the, you do the crime. You, you do, do the, the time. time yeah. That's what you do. We, we lock people up or we punish people. We put them under supervision, that sort of thing. Um. And, you know, a lot of studies show and a lot of data shows that that really is not a very effective deterrent to punishment. It certainly is not an effective way to make victims whole, to repair harm. Uh, So we did get a lot of pushback. And, you know, one place that surprised me was victims groups gave a lot of pushback because a lot of victims groups were headed by folks who had a very retributive kind of mindset. And understandably so. It's like the old saying that if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. I got a good friend that said that in a training one day when he was introducing me to talk yeah. about restorative justice. He said, so we're going to try to give you some different tools. But I found that to be true, especially in victims groups. Punishment was the tool that they had. They didn't want to do anything or they couldn't see how doing anything that benefited the victim and the offender was a positive thing for them to be involved in. What we understand better now is that most of our offenders, if they're in prison, are going to be released back into our community. So it does make sense that they are released back better people than they were going in. Um, I heard a a speaker who's written books about this say, you know, if you put a, a bad dog in a pen, and you walk by three times a day and poke him with a stick, he doesn't come out a better dog. He comes out a worse dog. And so we need to do things much better than what we've done when we're putting our people in a pen than walk by and poke them with a stick three times a day. And I think a lot of restorative practices do that. So anyway, that's a long way to say we got a lot of pushback. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's changed, and especially yeah. has out, in essence, more data has come out to see the, the benefits of it. And so... Yeah. Um, I think it's a natural process to have some pushback on some mm-hmm. things, but I'm, I'm liking th- that there's the realization that the pushback was wrong and, um, and things we, have, things can change. Yeah. And like I said, we don't get the pushback nearly as much as we used to. As a matter of fact, now Good. It's, it's me trying to find time on my calendar to go speak to all the people that want to hear about it and learn about it. Um, 
and part of my busy schedule is helping other jurisdictions to learn how to do this work. And the fastest growing area that we're seeing is within school systems, which to me, Stephen, is really positive because one of the main reasons that I wanted the clinic to start to begin with was to give schools a way to not send their kids into the court system. As a defense attorney, I saw kids get involved in a court system that they had very little chance of ever navigating and getting out of. And they graduate very early these days into the adult system. Back when we started at age 16, they were in the adult system. So I represented kids in juvenile court that then I would represent in the adult system, and I would see some of them go to prison, which is a very sad thing. And I often thought if we had some other way, uh, maybe we could stem some of this stuff. And this is that other way, and so we are stemming a lot of this now. I love it. I have a um, two final questions for you. One. How do people get a hold of the clinic if they need to or want more information? And then, uh, so answer that one first, actually. Well, we have a presence on the Campbell Law School website, and so anybody can find us on the website, and they could send an email uh, to that. Um, I'm happy for people to send emails directly to me, uh, Powell at campbell.edu, J-O-N-P-O-W-E-L-L, at campbell.edu. Um, so that probably is the easiest and the best way to get a hold of our clinic. Perfect. And then the last thing, Campbell has it just burned into everything that we do is leading with purpose. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about pretty much that whole umbrella here today, but I really want to know, what does that phrase mean to you? I think it goes back to what we were talking about, Stephen, that I said I want you to do and I want every law student to do and what I do with my life. I want you to lead out of who you are. Um, If you're here, you're here for a good purpose, and you're here uh, because you are created to be a person of purpose. And so I want you to lead out of whatever that is, and we all have different gifts and talents, and we can cover the board with all the gifts and talents that we have. So leading with purpose to me means to lead out of the purpose that you were created for. Awesome. Professor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Steve. This is the Campbell Law Reporter. Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform. This is the Campbell Law Reporter.